Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Well, Shabbat Shalom. We've been in a series on the book of Philippians. Uh, today is the last part, the final part of our, our series. It's part seven. Uh, and today we're going to focus on the themes of, of shalom, of peace, uh, and the secret of contentment uh, from Philippians chapter 4. So turn with me to Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. And it's on the overhead as well, Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious for anything. But in every situation... By prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace, the shalom of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Messiah Yeshua. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely and admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on these things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, Paul says, put it into practice. And the God of shalom, the God of peace, will be with you. I I uh, rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me, he writes. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content. Whatever the circumstance, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through Messiah who strengthens me. Amen. Now, I put this on the overhead, and this is kind of our theme for today. The premise of the gospel is that there's a world of difference between a morally restrained heart and a supernaturally changed heart. I'm saying there's a difference between controlling and suppressing your natural self-centeredness and the insecurity of your heart through willpower versus seeing it permanently changed to the power of the Holy Spirit. In Galatians 5.22, we see a list of the characteristics of a supernaturally changed heart called the fruits of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Today we finish this series with part seven uh, in Philippians. Uh, we're looking at what, what our passage says in here in chapter four tells us about peace and contentment. And we're going to learn three things here. Number one, the character of peace. Number two, the three disciplines of how to get that peace. And number three, the secret of peace. So uh, the character of peace, the disciplines for peace, uh, and the secret of peace. Number one, the character of peace. Now the opposite of peace is worry and anxiety and fear. And we see this illustrated here in our passage, Philippians 4 verse 6, where Paul says, don't be anxious, don't have anxiety, don't be anxious for anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And then what? Then there's the opposite of anxiety. Then the peace of God, which transcends understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Messiah Yeshua. So Paul says, don't be anxious for anything, 
but rather have the peace of God guard your heart and your mind. So the opposite of God's peace is anxiety. By the way, this word anxious here, it doesn't refer to this normal care and concern. You know, if you love someone or something, you will have a burden of love and concern that automatically comes with it. That's fine. But this word here at verse 6, it actually means, it says, don't be anxious for anything. It means to be torn up, uh, to be torn into pieces uh, by debilitating worry and fear. So what is this peace of God? Well, we're told two things here about it uh, in the overhead. Uh, first, uh, this biblical peace, it's an inner calm and equilibrium. So again, Philippians 4, verse 11, Paul says, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I've learned the secret of being content in every situation. So Paul says, I'm the same in one situation as another. Uh, that's poise and equilibrium and inner calm. Second, think about Paul's actual circumstances when he says this. You know, you know in contrast, what do we typically worry about today? You know, modern people... We spend money, lots of money, to try to get poise. Uh, we spend money on pills. We spend money on therapists. Uh, we spend people trying to, uh, to get poise uh, uh, because, to uh, face their bills, face their competition, face their boss, uh, face their date or, or lack of dates. <laughs> uh, these are things that we modern people get nervous about and anxious over. We are really hard at. But in contrast here, Paul's facing torture and death. He's writing this letter, by the way, from prison. He's in chains. Uh, and he's saying, I've learned the secret of being content even when I'm in chains and in prison. Now, does Paul say, well, I can just smile in the face of torture and death because I'm just that kind of guy. Uh, I'm tough. I can take it. No. That's some kind of talent. You know, talent is something you've been born with, or you just have. Uh, I'm just a tough cookie. No, he doesn't say that. He says, I've learned it. I've learned, look at the verse 11, Philippians 4.11. He says, I've learned to be content in every situation, in every circumstance. So it's not natural to Paul. He wasn't born with this ability. He had to learn how to do this. He's learned how to be calm and maintain his poise and have his equilibrium in any situation. It says in verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, who gives me strength. That's the first thing Paul tells us about the character of this supernatural peace. He's able to be calm and content in the midst of a storm. And then second thing Paul says is that this peace is not just an absence of fear. It's the presence of something. It's a sense of being protected. Look at verse 7. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Messiah Yeshua. This word guard here in the Greek, it's a military term. Uh, it's a very vivid word. It means to take an army and surround a city with that army in order to protect uh, that city from invasion. So if an army is guarding your city, you sleep well. <laughs> you don't have to worry about invaders or marauders or, or anything. So this is getting at something important. When people try to give advice on how to be calm, they almost always talk about removing negative thoughts. Uh, don't think about this or don't think about that. Don't think these negative thoughts. Uh, stop thinking about this. Control your thoughts. Expel those negative thoughts. And that's how you get calm. But here we see that the peace of God is not the absence uh, of some particular thoughts, but it's the presence 
of God himself. Paul says the God of peace will be with you. Biblical peace is not expelling negative thoughts. The problem with expelling negative thoughts is that what you're really doing here is refusing to face how hard life is. You're not being realistic. You're trying to get calm by not facing the facts. And overhead here, a biblical peace isn't that you stop facing the facts, but you get something in your life, a living power that comes into your life that enables you to triumph over the facts. The power of Messiah in your life lifts you up and over and through your negative circumstances. It's a sense of being protected, this supernatural peace of God. Now, if you've ever been on the coast in, in the midst of a storm uh, and seen waves come in and hit the rocks, you know, sometimes these waves uh, uh, are so huge they completely cover the rocks and you say to yourself, that's the end of that rock. <laughs> no way that rock's going to be there when the waves recede. And yet the waves go back out and there it is. The rock has not moved at all. And Paul is like that. If you read his life, you see wave after wave after wave. He's beaten, he's stoned, he's flogged, he's shipwrecked. They're after him, they're trying to kill him, he's betrayed. He suffers cold and hunger and deprivation. Wave after wave after wave. And yet he cannot be moved. He says, I have found a way to be content in every situation. Paul is a rock. Because he constantly, constantly leans upon the rock. And therefore all, therefore all the waves of life cannot break him. And Paul says, you can learn this too. So that's the character of biblical peace. It's an inner, number one, it's an inner calm, the overhead's an inner calm, an equilibrium, uh, that, that, equilibrium that comes from that. And number two, it's a sense of God's presence and God's protection. That passes all human understanding. Uh, not on the overhead now. That's number one, the character of peace. Number two, what are the spiritual disciplines by which you can develop this peace? There are three disciplines in the text that I'd like us to discuss today. And I'll put this on the overhead. The three disciplines are thinking, thanking, and loving. First thinking. Look in verse 8. Philippians 4, verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on such things, and the God of peace will be with you. So the first spiritual discipline of having the peace of God is thinking. And this is really important. Look at the the first three on the list of what we're supposed to think on. He says, whatever is true and noble and right. When Paul uses these particular words throughout his epistles, he's actually talking about doctrine. He's talking about biblical teachings. Biblical teachings on God and sin and Messiah and salvation and the world and human nature and God's plan for the world and the plan of salvation. That's what he's talking about on the overhead. Uh, Paul's saying, if you want peace, think about doctrine. Think about the biblical truths of these key topics. Think about what the scriptures teach you about life, uh, about God, about the fall, about redemption, about Yeshua. 
And this, by the way, is completely different from what you'll find if you walk into any uh, Barnes & Noble or, or, or Borders book or any other bookstore today, and you go to the section uh, on the books, this huge section in the bookstore, how to deal with anxiety uh, or worry or stress, how to relax and be serene and have peace. You go to any of these books, you open one of them up, and here's what these books will never do. None of them. These books, uh, uh, the, bo- the books will never say, if you're anxious, if you're stressed out, start by asking the big questions. What's the meaning of life? What are you here for? What's your life all about? Where have you come from? Where are you going? What should human beings spend their time on? Never. You'll never see any one of these popular self-help books address the big questions. Ever. Why? Because according, according to these books, they won't relieve stress for, for the modern secular person. Not at all. And here's why these books instead go right to technique all the time. They'll never ask you to think. They'll never say, let's think about the big questions. Uh, what's life all about? Uh, let's put things in perspective. Never. They go right to technique. Uh, relaxation techniques. Uh, promotion of, of work-rest balance. Uh, they say, once every three months, go somewhere, sit on a beach, look at the surf, bracket out everything else in your life, stop thinking, stop worrying about everything else going on, just zone out. Or maybe they'll give you thought control techniques for how to deal with negative thoughts and negative emotions. But they'll never tell you how to think or what to think. They'll go right to technique. And here's why. Here's why the modern secular person doesn't want to ask about the big questions. I want you to read with me two quotes from two very famous atheists. The first is from Charles Darwin, founder of the modern theory of evolution. And in the overhead, he says this. A person who has no assured belief in the existence of a personal God and no belief in a future uh, existence of retribution and reward, such a person can have no rule for his life as far as I see, only to follow whatever impulses and instincts are the strongest or whatever seems to him to be the best ones. The second quote is from Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., famous U.S. Supreme Court justice in the early 20th century. And he writes this on the overhead. There's no reason for attributing to a man a significance different in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or a grain of sand. The world has produced me and the rattlesnake, but I'll kill it if I get a chance. And the only reason is because it's incongruous to the world I want. The world that everyone's trying to make according to one's own power. Oliver Wendell Holmes, he says, there's no rational reason to believe a human being is more valuable or more significant than an animal or or even a rock. And despite how outrageous this sounds... He's just working out the natural implications that that if you don't believe in God. Same thing with what Darwin's saying. If you don't believe in God, if you believe you're just here by accident, uh, when you die, you rot. You know, that's it. When the sun dies, everything dies with it. uh, And therefore, nothing that human beings have ever done will matter. Well, what are the implications of, of, of that belief? One of them is there's no right or wrong. You may feel there's a right and a wrong, Darwin says. You may have a feeling, but your feeling shouldn't trump anybody else's. You can feel it, but there is no right or wrong, he says. 
There's no way to tell people how they ought to live. If Holmes is right and there is no God, then ultimately we're just a product of random forces. Uh, we're going to die uh, someday. And so you may feel more significant than, than an animal or a rock, but you're not. And so Holmes is just thinking out the implications of if there is no God, uh, there's no purpose for life. Uh, and there are plenty of people today, obviously, who have the same beliefs. You know, huge numbers today in the West who have those same beliefs. They don't think there's a God. They think we're, they think we're here by accident. Uh, but, but they'd also say, to think about it like Darwin does, or like Oliver Wendell Holmes just does, to think about those actual implications, uh, well, well, that's morbid. Uh, so they just live in denial. And ref- they refuse to think about the actual implications of their beliefs. And so if this is you, you're getting your peace by not thinking. You're getting your peace by not thinking out the implications of your belief. Whereas Paul's saying biblical peace is the exact opposite. Biblical peace comes from thinking out the implications of your beliefs. What's true, what's right, what's noble. These are biblical truths. There is a God. He made us for fellowship with him. He created a perfect world in which originally there was no sorrow or disease or death. And he wanted to live with us in that world. But through our sin and rebellion and pride, it's gone all wrong. We've turned from him, and now the world is broken. But he sent his son into the world to restore us. And he's preparing a new heavens and a new earth. Uh, And if we're in Messiah Yeshua, we are going to live with him forever. So, so, so look at your value in Yeshua. Look at the fact that if you're found in him, your future is secure. Now, what does all that mean? If you're in Yeshua, if you are a Yeshua follower today, and you affirm all these truths and you live by them, uh, and if you're not at peace, you're not thinking. You're not thinking. You see, there's what I call a stupid peace and a smart peace. <laughs> Stupid peace is, ho, 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 to the bottle I go, <laughs> to heal my heart and drown my woe. <laughs> I'm going to pop a cork, I'm going to sit under a tree, I'm going to look at the surf, I'm going to get drunk, and I'm not going to think. <laughs> I'm going to bracket out everything in the world. I'm not going to think about my problems. But Paul is saying the exact opposite. He's saying, if you are a believer, do not bracket out, bracket in. You think about the big picture. Everything's ultimately going to be okay. If you really believe the gospel, if you really believe the scriptures, and you think it through, you will get peace. So if you're a believer, and today if you don't have peace, you're not thinking. Uh, There's a stupid peace and a smart peace. A believer's peace is not by making yourself stupid. (laughs) It's by making yourself as aware of your beliefs... And it's aware of those implications of your beliefs uh, and by being as thoughtful as possible. Romans 12, verse 2. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. So that's, that's, number, that's number one of uh, the disciplines. You're in the discipline of thinking uh, on the overhead. Number two, secondly, there's the discipline of thanking. Look at verse 6. Don't be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. So thanksgiving uh, is put against being anxious or worried. It's the, it's, it's the contrast here. 
now, we would normally want to say this in a bit of a different order, right? We normally want to say, you make your request to God, uh, you get your request, and then you thank him for it, right? But that's not what the verse says. It says, you thank him as you make your request. Well, well why should I thank him ahead of time? Don't I want to wait to see what the result is? <laughs> no. In the overhead here. The scriptures say you'll never be content unless you make your request. And by doing this, you acknowledge that your life is in his hands. And you thank him for whatever he's going to do. You're never going to get contentment until you see this. Now, God did not make this world to be filled with violence and suffering and death and sorrow. But he's got a plan. He's got a plan to renew the world. He's got a plan to restore the earth to its original state of perfection uh, and, and sinlessness and peace. We read this in Romans 8, 28, famous, famous verse. I know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Even the bad things, even the things that God hates, that he didn't put into this world, he's going to weave it into a plan, a tapestry. He's going to put it all together Weave it all together, ultimately, for your good and for his glory. On the day, think about this. On the day that Yeshua was crucified, all of his followers would have looked at him and said, I can't believe this. All the, think about all the good he was doing. The people he was healing. The people's lives he was changing. I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe they're crucifying him. And I can't believe that God could ever bring anything good out of this. And if you had been there, and if I had been there at the cross, we would have said the same thing. I can't believe God could ever bring anything good out of this. And we would have been looking straight at the greatest thing God has ever done for the redemption of the world. But you and I couldn't get our little brains around it at the moment to see how it could possibly be. And the Lord is saying to you today, that's just the prime example of what I'm doing in your life. Even the bad things that are happening to you, I'm working for good. Here's an example, by the way, from my own life. Uh, in college uh, and in law school, both, I had a crush on this girl, uh, Kathy. We both went to Cornell uh, and to Stanford together, same class. She was a believer, and I was sure this was the girl that the Lord wanted me to marry. And so I prayed, and I prayed to the Lord, make it happen, Lord. <laughs> but she did not have the same feelings for me. And, of course, she was the wrong girl. <laughs> It wasn't the one sitting back there with a grin on her face. God knows what's best for us. And even something at the time I thought was a bad thing, Kathy breaking up with me, God worked for good. And when we as believers, we pray to the Lord, he, he, he gives us what we would have asked for if we had known everything that he knows. And next week, Elizabeth and I will celebrate our 37th anniversary. Uh, being happily married, uh, she's put up with me 37 years. 
we pray, God answers our prayer by giving us what we would have asked for if we had known everything that he knows. Do you believe that today? Do you trust in that? Because the degree that you, to that, uh, the degree to which you believe that and you trust in that, you will have peace. And if you don't believe that, you won't have peace. Make your request known with thanksgiving. So on the overhead, there's thinking. That's the first spiritual discipline for getting peace. Secondly, there, there's thanking is the second discipline. And loving is the third spiritual discipline to cultivate biblical peace. Notice that Paul doesn't say just, just to think on what's true and noble and right. By the way, when Paul says think, I'm sorry, to, uh, to think on such things, the, the Greek word means to drill down, uh, to ponder, uh, to gnaw over, to chew over, to meditate. It doesn't just mean to think about. It means to continually pound these things into your head. But these first three, whatever's true and noble and right, they have more to do with, with the mind. But then look at uh, verse 8, Philippians 4, verse 8. Whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, whatever is excellent or praiseworthy, think on these things. On the overhead, this is attraction. This is love. It's not enough just to think on the right things. It's also important to love the right things. Now, in Paul's day, the great issue in Greek philosophy, the great problem was, how can you live a life of contentment? Uh, and the Greek word for that was uh, eterakia. And the, by the way, that's the exact same word Paul uses here in verses 11 and 12. Look at Philippians verse 11. I've learned to be content in every situation, in every circumstance. Paul says, I've learned. Uh, I have this eterakia. It means I'm independent of circumstances. Uh, it means to have poise, uh, uh, this power, uh, not to be upset. Uh, to be not to be devastated or melted down or, or freaking out over, over, over everything, but rather be poised and content and at peace. And the philosophers, the, the, the school of philosophy that really focused on this at the time were the Stoics. And the Stoics taught the reason why you, you're not content, you don't live lives of equilibrium, is because you love the wrong things. You should, for example, they say you should never love success because if you set your heart on success. Even if you get it, you, you'll always be anxious. You'll always, always be worried about losing it. But, and of course, if you don't get it, you'll you even be worse off. So you shouldn't set your heart even on, on family, uh, they say, because even, even, even if you get a good family, you're always going to be worried about it. Something's gonna, something bad's going to happen to them. Uh, you'll always be anxious. I think something might go wrong. And if something does go wrong in your family, you'll be devastated. So the Greek philosopher said the problem is that you're loving things you have no control over. And therefore, don't give your heart to anything except your own virtue. Because virtue, they said, is the one thing you can control. You can't control success. It's got too much to do with circumstances. You can't control your family. All sorts of things can go wrong. So don't set your heart in anything you can't control. That's what they said. And then then you'll know tranquility. Set your heart only on your own virtue. Uh, you can be courageous. You can have integrity. Uh, you can be honest. Set your heart on the only thing that should really and truly make you content. To know that you're being the person that you want to be. That's under your control. That's under your control. Nothing else is. But Paul says this. Paul says, you guys have completely missed the boat. You're deceived if you think that your virtue is under your control. 
It's not. Yes, if you say, I'm going to live, I think I'm going to live for success and it's not certain and you're ever going to achieve it and therefore you'll be anxious. But he also says, but if you say the thing that matters to me is that I want to be the person that I want to be. I'm going to be the person that I want to be. Live according to my own principles. Live according to my own virtues. Paul says that's every bit as uncertain. You don't have control over that. Why? Because you are just a frail, fallen, fallible human being. And if you put all your stock in this, you will fail and have nothing. So you've got it all wrong. You shouldn't, yes, you shouldn't be loving the things out there, but Paul says also you should not be loving uh, these internal virtues either, because they too can fail and fall. On the overhead, St. Augustine said this, only love of the immutable can bring tranquility. Only love of the immutable, the love of that which cannot change. Your virtue can change. The reason we don't have peace and contentment is that we're loving mutable, changeable things. You know, things, things that, that our circumstances can take away from us, including even your virtue. But there's one thing that is immutable. And that only can, and, and, and uh, not, not only can circumstances not take it away from you, but even the worst circumstances in your life only give you more of it. What's the worst circumstance? Death. And there's one thing that if you love supremely, even death itself actually gives you more of it. It's the presence of God, the beauty of God, the face of God. Augustine says this in his famous biography, The Confessions, he was on the overhead. He says, God alone is a place of peace that cannot be disturbed. And God will not withhold himself from your love unless you withhold your love from him. There it is. If you love the immutable... If you love the Lord Yeshua supremely, above all else, you will have tranquility and know the secret of contentment. How can you not obtain this? Only if you withhold your love from him. But if you don't withhold your love from him, he will not withhold his love from you. Okay, now what if you say, all right, uh, I love God, but let's be honest, I I love a lot of other things too. Uh, I love material comforts. I love people. I love sports. Uh, I love music. Uh, uh, I, I love achievement. Uh, I love romance. I love lots of things. Do I have to love God only and not these other things? No. But if you love, if you love Yeshua supremely, so that all these other things pale in comparison, uh, almost look like hate in comparison, Yeshua says, then not only will you get God, but you'll also find that what you've been loving in these things. That was the, that aspect of them that actually was of God. One more time, Augustine on the overhead, he writes this. What do I love when I love you, Lord? Not the beauty of bodies, nor the harmony of time, nor the brightness of light so gladsome to my eyes, nor the sweetest melodies of various songs, nor the fragrant smell of flowers, nor limbs acceptable to the embracement of the flesh. None of these things do I love when I love my God. But, and yet, I love a kind of light and melody and fragrance and embracement when I love my God. But they are those which space cannot contain, which time cannot bear away. Their smells of breathing cannot disperse. 
their tastes, which eating cannot diminish. This is what I love when I love my God. That's the final way to get calm and tranquility and peace and contentment is to love and adore and cherish and treasure and desire and enjoy and worship Yeshua supremely. And the overhead, that's number one, the character of peace and the three disciplines of peace, thinking, thanking, loving. Now, finally, number three, the secret of peace. Why do I need this third point? Why do we need it? Okay, well, try to go home and love the immutable. And then tell me how it went. Go home, find a nice quiet place, sit down, and try. Try to love the immutable. Not so easy in the abstract. You see, in isolation, God can just be a term, an abstract concept. But notice what the text says. I've learned the secret of being content in every situation. How? What's your secret, Paul? Look at verse 7, Philippians 4, verse 7. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Messiah Yeshua. Note it's all based on being in Messiah Yeshua. And Paul separately lists hearts and minds here because it's one thing to keep your thoughts, your mind on Yeshua. It's another thing to put your heart in him. Have your whole heart, your desire, and your longing, and your ardor, and yearning, and aching, and passion in Messiah Yeshua. Now, how does this work to find him attractive, to find him lovely, to find him unbelievably lovely and beautiful beyond bearing? Paul says, I want you not only to think on Yeshua, but to find him lovely, to utterly give your heart to him, to be madly in love with him, your bridegroom God. That's the only way to find peace and joy and tranquility and contentment. How do we do this? And Isaiah 57, verse 20, it says, The wicked are like the tossing sea who cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Now look carefully. The text actually is talking about natural consequences. If you love anything more than God, if you live for anything more than God, your life will be like the tossing sea, uh, which cannot rest, constantly tossing up mire and mud. Because your life will be like a house built on the sand instead of built on the rock. And you'll always be fearful of having cave-ins. If you love anything uncertain or temporary, you're always going to be anxious about it all the time. If you live, if you love anything more than God, more than the Lord, you're going to live in constant uncertainty and anxiety and fear. The Lord says the natural consequences of turning away from me, the natural consequences of not building and centering your life on me is restlessness, deep restlessness. Now, who took all those consequences of our restlessness that we deserve? Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin, Yeshua, to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And when it says that God made Yeshua to be sin, it doesn't mean he made Yeshua sinful. It means he became our sin offering. Our sins were imputed to him. He's our Yom Kippur scapegoat. 
So that on the cross, God had treated him as we sinners deserve to be treated. On the cross, Yeshua got all the consequences of what you and I have done. And this is one of them. Restlessness. On the cross, did Yeshua say, I'm okay, I'm keeping my peace. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm content in whatever circumstances. And whatever I'm in, I'm content. Did Yeshua say that on the cross? No, he didn't. Because he wasn't. Why not? Because he lost his peace. He cries out in Matthew 27, 46, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He dies with a cry. He dies screaming. And over here, there's a commentator, Bill Lane, who writes about this cry of dereliction, this scream. And he says this, Crucified criminals ordinarily suffer complete exhaustion. And for, for a long period of time, they were unconscious uh, before they died. But the stark realism of the gospel account describes a sudden, violent death. Yeshua's cry of dereliction expresses unfathomable pain. The bottom line, Yeshua lost all his peace. All of his peace. So that you could have eternal peace. And looking at that is what gets you through. That's what makes him lovely. Here's an example, by the way, from the life of Horatio Spafford. He was an American lawyer who lost everything he had in the Chicago fire of 1871. And two years later, he sends his wife, Anna, and their four little girls on a ship to England. The ship hits another ship on the way uh, and begins to sink. As it was sinking, Anna got the four little girls together. They were believers. They all prayed. The ship goes down. They were all scattered into the waves. And all four little girls drowned. Anna was later found unconscious by a rescue ship floating in the water. They rescued her. They took her to England. On her arrival there, she cables her husband, Horatio Spafford, just two words. Saved alone. Saved alone. And when he was on the next ship over to England to bring his wife home, he penned this now famous hymn, It is well with my soul. Peace like a river. He wrote it in these terrible circumstances. Now, why would a man, dealing with his grief, seeking the peace of God, peace like a river, why would he write an entire hymn all about Yeshua? One line goes like this on the overhead. It goes, my sin, oh, the bliss of that glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but in whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Now, what has that got to do with these four little girls who are now dead? Everything. Everything. When things go wrong, one of the ways you lose your peace is you say, well, maybe I'm being punished. No. Look at the cross. All the punishment fell on Messiah. You say, well, maybe God just doesn't care for me. No. Look at the cross. Look what he did for you. Look what he bore for you. Of course he cares. The Bible gives you a God who says, I've lost a child too. 
but not involuntarily, but voluntarily for your sake and for mine. In this famous hymn, you see a man thinking and thanking and loving Yeshua, resulting in the supernatural peace of God. It worked for Horatio Spafford in his tragic circumstances. It worked for Paul in his terrible circumstances. And it will work for you. On the overhead, here's the hymn. We'll close with this. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trial should come, let this blessed assurance control that Messiah has regarded my helpless estate and shed his blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of that glorious, of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but in whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. For me, be it him, be it Christ hence to live. If Jordan above me shall roll, no pain shall be mine. For in death as in life, thou will whisper thy peace to my soul. But Lord, tis for thee, for thy coming we wait. The sky, not the grave, is our goal. O trump of the angel, O voice of the Lord, blessed hope, blessed rest of my soul. And Lord, haste the day when faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back like a scroll. The trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. A song in the night, O my soul. Amen. And stand and pray. Like the music team, please come on up. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father, for giving us this offer. Peace like a river. Peace infallible. We see, Lord, that your peace isn't just something that comes naturally. It's not just some talent. It's fostered by spiritual disciplines. We have a number of beliefs we're not thinking into. We have a wonderful Savior we're not really loving. And therefore, we don't have the peace that we ought to have. Lord, today, give us this peace. We know the secret. How we can be thankful even for bad things in our life. It's the cross. How we can know that you, Lord, are with us no matter what. It's the cross. How we can know that you love us and care for us. Look at the cross. And so we pray, Lord, that you, will, that you would help us, knowing the gospel of Yeshua the Messiah, to think uh, and, 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 and to thank and to love you into the peace of God. We pray this in your name, Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat shalom. Thank you.